So I'd like to tell you welcome to our conversation tonight. Tonight we'll be focusing on the Afro-Latino experience, which is something I'm very excited about, considering that it's possibly the best example in history of erasure that has ever happened in humanity. Because as we, many of us would know, um, maybe in certain circles, that there are many African people in the Latin American countries in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but what the majority of people don't know is that the largest amount of Africans actually went to Latin American countries and even Brazil has the largest population of African people in the Western Hemisphere. So I'm very happy that we're discussing this tonight. Um, you know, there are other aspects of Latin American culture that are actually African, but are promoted as non-African, stuff like merengue and salsa and um, even samba out of Brazil, they all have African roots. So um, before we get into the conversation, I would like to pay homage to Eshu, Papa Eshu, the Orisha, who is the guardian of the crossroads and all pathways and roads. We ask his permission to enter. We ask his permission to have this conversation and to invite the Orishas and our ancestors to be here with us to guide and protect us and to give us the best possible uh, experience tonight. So Papa Ishu, we acknowledge you and we ask for your opening of the gates. Okay, so let's proceed by introducing our first panelist. Her name is Kaylinard Raymond. She is an American Haitian based in Washington, D.C. And um, Kaylinard is a diplomat for the State Department, and she's also the public affairs chief for the USA Embassy in my country, Trinidad. Um, Kaylinard is a professional international development as well as international relations. So, Kaylinard, One? Respect. Respect. Okay, so Kaylin taught me that earlier. That is a traditional greeting in Haiti. In Haiti, it's in Creole, and it is basically "one," which means honor. And she answered, "Respect," which means respect. Which is respect. Okay, and apparently this greeting goes all the way back to the revolution. So I was very happy to learn that from you earlier. Um, I would like to now introduce our second panelist for the night. We have Dash Harris Machado, who is an American Panamanian. And um, Dash is a writer, an entrepreneur, a consultant, a multimedia producer. Um, as an entrepreneur, she's the co-founder of the Afro-Latino Travel. Um, as a writer, she does a lot of freelance work with online publications, but one book that she has published is um, 100 Shades of Black. She's featured in that book, so we want to encourage our audience to go out and look out for that book as well. She's the producer of Negro, which is a famous docu-series on Latino identity with, of course, a focus on Africans in Latin America. Um, so I would like to welcome Dash to the conversation tonight. Ago Ile? Ago Yan. So Dash is 
um, a practitioner of Ifa, which is very common in many um, Caribbean and Latin American nations, South America, English-speaking Caribbean countries as well. Um, a lot of us have roots in Yoruba traditions. I know it's very common in Trinidad and Brazil and Cuba as well. So that is greeting dash in her religious framework. Yeah, so ladies, I would like to open up the conversation about the African Latino experience. Let's do it. <laughs> Wait, I just want to say real fast, The Hundred Shades of Black is by Carlton McKay. Um, you know, just so that it's clear. I'm, I'm one of the writers in the book, but he's, he was the um, publisher, just to clear that up, because I don't want no smoke. <laughs> Good, to Good to know. Yeah, and you know, I'm actually very pleased to have you on the panel tonight, because a lot of Trinidadians have grandparents who came to Trinidad because of the building of the Panama Canal. So the diaspora connection between the English-speaking Caribbean and Panama has always fascinated me. As a matter of fact, my great-grandfather died building the Panama Canal. So it's a pleasure to have you here, Dash, to represent Panama, and I look forward to hearing what you have to teach us tonight. Uh, well, I'm glad to be here. Um, and speaking of Trinidad, um, I know you know that song, Matilda, she take me money, I'm running Venezuela. And yeah, so yeah. that alludes to the continuous migration, um, intra-Caribbean migration. Um, one of my great-grandfathers, great-grandfathers was, was from Jamaica and, and a great-grandmother great as well. Um, and so I, so I have the surname Harris, right? Which is actually Irish. Um, because you had that, that colonization with I Irish people in Jamaica and so on and so forth, the various European powers in the, in the region, right? And so um, we are right now, this week, it, it's Fiestas Patrias in, in Panama, which are national holidays, um, celebrating the, the separation of Panama from Colombia, um, which was orchestrated by the US so that they could get the canal so that they could get control of the land so that they would have that military economic advantage. And but for all intents and purposes, Panama is a republic because it was, uh, it aligned with Wall Street interest um, in, in getting more rich essentially. And like I always say with anything in Latin America and the Caribbean, no, imperialist, no imperialistic project could come to fruition without the complete collaboration of the elite of those countries. And so the biggest reason why Panama is a republic is because white Panamanians had interests in the US taking over um, the canal or the land where the canal was um, built by black labor, right? Because none of this is possible without black people. None of it, none of it. <laughs> um, and even further, because I wanna just throw the ball to Gerenard um, sorry, I made your name into Spanish. <laughs> I love that. I was just going to say, ooh, Latinidad, let's get it. But even before, even before that, none of this is possible without Haiti. Like, I want to get that very clear as well. Um, in speaking about white elites that um, mirror, white, white Latin American elites that mirror North American white elites. Um, and I only say elites in terms of who's controlling the countries, not that I believe they're elite, right? In, 
And the, 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 the fact that Haiti was responsible for a lot of these liberation projects, obviously their own, and um, the, the idea uh, or the formation of New Granada, which then became Grand Colombia, which then was, which then owned Panama, right? Um, Bolivar came groveling to Haiti and said, hey, can you help us with this liberation project? And Haiti's like, why would we help you white men who own people? Um, and Haiti was like, we're not giving you anything until you make some promises. And, and Bolivar was like, fine, I'll free enslaved people, this, 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 that. He got the gunpowder, he got the arms, the weapons, everything he needed, right? And soldiers. So everything, intellectual and property, genius. Mm-hmm. And what happened? He won because of Haiti, took all the credit. Three out of five people in that war were black people, right? Mm-hmm. Also Haitians within that. And what did he do? He turned around and didn't recognize Haiti as a, as a republic and invited the U.S. to the first convening of um, American or the uh, independent states in the Americas. And so, you know, um, I, I wanted to mention that because that was on my mind heavy today. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking about the Latino vote in the U.S., I'm like, none of, no Black people in any part of the Americas is surprised by this. This is what it is. Exactly, exactly. And thank you so much, Dash, for bringing that up because one of the things that I wanted to confront first in this conversation is, you know, a lot of folks looking at the title of this conversation, Afro-Latinidad, and who actually subscribes to the idea of being Afro-Latina or Afro-Latino. Um, as a Haitian American, it was a concept that was totally foreign to me uh, up until college that there were Haitians even entertaining the idea of, of being Latina or Latino. I think the, the simula- similarities and the commonalities that we've had in the region, in the Latin American, South American region, have been exactly because of what Dash mentioned in history. And even though in the end, Bolivar was, you know, disloyal and didn't acknowledge Haiti, there is this concept in Haiti, and I think in the rest of the Caribbean, of Bolivarianism, which is like, you know, we are of the Americas, we are of these people that are passionate about liberty and a republic, and of, you know, establishing land and systems for our own people. That has driven a lot of politics in the nation as well. You'll see the relationships that certain countries have with Venezuela today that they had with Chavez and that they had with Maduro are based on this brotherhood idea that goes all the way back when. So in terms of solidarity and and some identity, that I get. But again, the concept of myself as a Black woman subscribing to the idea that because of my heritage as a, a Haitian and someone in the Caribbean of a country that at one point was colonized by um, a Latin country or, or Spain, being Latina, it, it, it doesn't really compute. There's a movement now, and I credit Dash and a lot of other women and folks in this field that are pushing the envelope in terms of what identity is and what our regional you know, alliances and, and regional commonalities. People are starting to push that button and people are starting to own what their identity is now. And I think that's great. But a lot of identity is what is conferred upon you too, right? When you're in the United States, whether or not you want to identify as Black, one drop rule. So it's, it's as much as about how you want to identify and also how the rest of the world sees you. So wanted to offer that up front in terms of 
the umbrella of of myself and Afro Latini dad. Yeah, so, you know, as well, we'd like to acknowledge Haiti <laughs> and any Haitians that are in the room tonight. I think that all of us in the African di diaspora, um, you know, look at Haiti. Well, not look at Haiti. Haiti is the big brother. So we'd like to acknowledge all the Haitians in the room and say that we stand in solidarity with Haiti at all Thank times. You. Yeah, I, we do. That, that warms my heart to hear that because, you know, we go to a lot of Caribbean parties and sometimes they forget us. So thank you for acknowledging us in this space. Yeah, I think that language barrier, language and colonial history plays mm -hmm. a big part in barriers that we don't even realize. You know, I was even speaking to someone earlier today and I was saying, you know, countries like Trinidad, Jamaica, Barbados, we are so far removed from the U.S. Virgin Islands, just by virtue of them being owned or governed by the United States, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so I think language barrier plays a big part in association, but you know, it could also be historical, you know, but and hopefully you know, we, can, we, can, we can fix those bridges. I believe that with the worldwide web and with a lot of things happening right now the African diaspora is getting closer and closer and realizing it culturally the music is meshing the dances are meshing the conversations are meshing and we are realizing that overall we have more similarities than differences and we're more or less the same no mm -hmm. matter where we're located so hopefully we can bridge those gaps I want us to. I think it's important. Um, and I am going to push the envelope a little bit and say, in addition to language and history, I do think the Caribbean looks at Haiti as a problem child sometimes. And I think in terms of how you want to identify with Haiti on the larger scale of one Caribbean, yeah, we do that. But a lot of times, for better or for worse, Haiti is in a class of its own. So there was a conversation that the Prime Minister of Barbados, um, Mia Motley, she had the other day, which was very inspiring and talking about the concept of moonshots and about tapping into the greatness and the potential of the Caribbean, but it has to be as a united people. It has to be recognizing that, you know, we're a region of greats, we're a region of, of strengths. And if if we don't just do the unity thing for, you know, uh, for fun, for parties, for, for flag bearing and, you know, but also do it in the sense of regional economic development, empowerment of our people. Um, we can go far. So I want that. Marcus Garvey also told us that. Yeah, I really want that for us. So ladies, I would like to find out your thoughts about erasure because the erasure of the African population in Latin America is something that has always fascinated me. As I said, I think it's, the best example of erasure in history. There are a vast majority of people who do not know that the majority of African people in the Western Hemisphere reside in Latin America. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I was gonna, uh, and this actually ties in because all of this is connected, right? Um, I really, really, I agree and regretfully agree because it's terrible. Um, I do think that people do look at Haiti as a problem child, right? And the thing is, is that problem child um, was responsible 
for a lot of the advancements of Black people. And, and I mean, that, that's not so far off than how Black people are exploited globally, right? They use Black people when they need to forward a certain agenda and then they discard us, you know? And so um, I think that also plays into the question that you just asked. Um, about the erasure of, of Black people in the region. In, uh, what, and to your other point about Caribbean countries and Latin America and the region, um, language being a barrier, the thing is, is that I think there's a certain Anglophone domination that continuously happens um, because language was never, I mean, it was, it was always a challenge, right? For 500 years, but somehow we created new languages. Somehow we made new dialects. Somehow, you know, People in, in the region are usually bilingual just out of the womb, right? Even if we want to talk about the U.S., Black people, um, African-American vernacular English, they're already bilingual, right? Um, black people in the Caribbean, the various dialects of, of the various languages were already bi and trilingual, trilingual, right? And so I think there's, a, there's an element of that Anglophone domination that continuously happens and, and people are kind of reluctant to try to communicate in French or Spanish, right? Like, um, and specifically in the Haitian context, it's like, oh, well, they speak Creole. And so like, eh, you know, whereas people will try their hand at Jamaican um, Patois, right? Like people like game to, to do that or like to put on a Creole Caribbean accent or, and all of that is appropriation. I'm not, um, I don't want to erase that. Um, and so there's, a, there's this, the dynamics and the levels of power. And to your, to your point, Tanya, about the erasure of Black people, um, nobody, and rather the region, what, after the emancipation, the emanci emancipation years within each country, uh, the Latin American white elite, they wanted to formulate their image of the region, which the U.S. painted as a mongrel region. Oh, look at all these mixed people. Uh, that can justify us dominating them. That can justify the Anglo domination of this Latin race of people where, where Latin was racialized. And so in speaking about French domination, right, it was Napoleon that came up with the term or his, his administration um, came up with the term Latin America or Amerique Latin, right? And this was to justify his military involvement in Mexico. Um, because you had the war, the warring and the changing of hands of colonial powers, which all, always is hegemonic, is domination. And so with the, in the Latin American context, these white elites um, being painted as this mixed nation, as not, not worthy enough, the U.S. had to paint the region as Spaniard, mixed, mestizo, lazy, their values are not Anglo values, they're backwards, they don't know how to manage their own people, they don't know how to manage their own government, look at them mixing with the Blacks, look at them mixing with the Indigenous, and so Latin America had to push back against that, right, because the imperialism, the Anglo domination, they didn't want that, and you have so many examples of Latin American presidents who, like, for example, Arias, a former president of, of Panama, he went to visit Hitler, he was a self-proclaimed Nazi, and one of the biggest reasons was that he wanted to ally with Germany so that he wouldn't, so that the U.S. couldn't dominate Panama. And so there's countless examples. The examples are longer than a CVS receipt, miles and miles of, of receipts on the, the, the power struggle among whites, the whites that control Latin America, um, and, and its struggles and domination. And it's centered in white power. 
And so again, um, my, my colleague and friend, Javier, he says that Latin America likes to keep its black population tucked away until it's, to, until it's time to win some shit. And that means in sports, that means in wars, because we always on the front lines and including the military in the US, black people going overseas to kill other black people. And so they use us when they need us and throw us away when, when it's time for any type of advancement or change on our behalf. It's not gonna happen. Why should it? And um, so Dash laid out the historical context and the big powers at play that feed into erasure. And using the Haitian perspective, now I'm going to do some self-reflection and break down how we do it to ourselves. So in every country in the world, but also in the Caribbean and Latin America, we, we're suffering from colorism, right? It is a battle that we have every day. And so because of the systematic attempts to whiten populations, Haiti and the DR are in this, by Napoleon, by Trujillo, by all these people who literally brought in white people to whiten the population. We now have a system in place where you have gradations of skin color that directly correspond to how you're treated in society. Haiti also has a system, and I, I think that this applies to other Caribbean countries too, but I'm gonna speak about Haiti, in which not only does the color of your skin confer status on you but the, also the texture of your hair right and so you can colorism be, texturism featureism featureism don't forget the features the right the the, the <laughs> yeah. wide nose the you know the eyes so this is how we do it to ourselves and this is how we perpetuate the erasure because if you're a country that says i am latin because we look like this you have every reason and incentive to hide your black population if the power and the money can only be concentrated in people that are lighter skinned and have wavier hair, you have economic incentives to hide those people. And so for, for Haiti, for example, you know, it's, it, it's, we, we don't speak Spanish in Haiti. It's not one of our, our national languages. But because of the storied, what we call mulatto, which can be an, an offensive term, but that's what they've always been called. The group that from revolutionary days up to now is a mixed race cabal of sorts that has power in the country. They can see themselves in the elites of all the other countries in the Caribbean. They can move through spaces easily because of their skin color, even in the DR, you know, they're going there back and forth. And D Dominicans will look at them and be like, oh, you don't location, and then they'll laugh, you know what I mean, and be like, oh, what do you mean I don't location? Um, and actually, if I could delve into that tangent a little bit, there's, there was a movement that has kind of died down because it was seen as offensive, which was a few years ago, with the ascent of social media, you would see typically beautiful, I use the word typically as in Eurocentric standard of beauty, typically beautiful people posting pictures saying, oh, I don't look Haitian. And the intent behind that was to say, you can't group all of Haitians together in the phenotype of dark skin with coarse hair. We all look different. And at first people embraced it as sort of, yeah, you know, look at Haiti, like they're, they're diverse. But then when you examine it, you're like, 
but what's wrong with 99% of our population looking like they are from Africa? What's wrong with, with Haiti being a black country, one of the, one of the, not one of the, the first country to um, separate its colonial ties and therefore have the most ties back to Africa? What's wrong with the people looking like that? You're saying that your value as a country is increased by the fact that you have more gradations of blackness and more proximity to whiteness. So I think that's something that, you know, we're, we're still examining, but in terms of erasure, it's, it's about value. It's about how you value your country and how you think you're going to get more value by who you erase. Very interesting. Um, when I was at university, there was a student organization called Afro-Latinos Making Alliances. And then they later changed their name after they established the organization, literally like two months later, they changed it to Cimarrones, right? Because they were like, you know what? We don't want to be called Latinos, <laughs> right? They were like, we don't want to be called Latinos. And I made some friends. I remember a friend I made, she was from Honduras. Um, very dark skin, very, what I would call, and two type of features. Um, nobody believed she was Latino. And uh, she took me amongst her community in Brooklyn. And they were called Garifunas from Honduras. I believe there's some of them in St. Vincent. I believe a lot of them were very rebellious Africans on the slave ships. You know, you always have those groups. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes, you know, if they were too bad, they would ship them out of the Caribbean and send them to Honduras, you know? And um, so she taught me a lot about the Afro-Latino experience. Um, she said there's a lot of racism, a lot of systemic racism. She said at <clears throat> levels that she doesn't even think that African-Americans and English-speaking Caribbean people would even fathom. Um, but a lot of systemic racism. She spoke about a lot of Africans in the Latin American countries living below the poverty line, um, receiving lesser education. She said it was really, really bad. And it's almost as though they can't get the word out there for assistance because nobody even knows that they exist. Yet there are such large numbers. Yeah. So, um, that's very, very interesting. So um, do you know about the Garifuna people in um, Panama? Yes, well, right? I mean, no, well, being from New York, the, the, yeah. there's a large Garifuna population in the Bronx. I yes. think they're the second largest group outside of Latin America. Like they, you know, we have our enclaves, you know, in the U.S. And so the Bronx is one of those. And the Garifuna there, um, um, yeah, I mean, look, we have our, our cimarrones, our rebellious, our self-emancipated mm -hmm. Africans, our um, in, uh, Coromanti, right? Um, except our Haitians, right? <laughs> you know, on and on and on. Um, and so we have this all throughout history. I mean, we've always resisted, you know, whether uh, people may just even in our spirituality, the fact that we're even saying Ifa, the fact yeah. that we, we're even saying uh, Yoruba, the fact that we're even say, saying um, uh, Vodun, 
all of that are, are measures of resistance. Um, and so with the Garifuna there, um, and actually some communities are being, are underwater. The, the, the flood and the, the hurricane and the, the weather that's um, flooding out um, some Garifuna communities in Puerto Barrios, in Honduras, in Guatemala, and also some parts in Panama, um, where it's by and large indigenous and African peoples. Um, and so that, that sense of rebellion, that has always been through, you know, throughout time and space. In, and in relation to what your, your colleague said, and actually I really like that little tidbit about how they changed the name from Afro-Latino to Cimarron. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because again, and this is what my colleague, my really good friend, um, John Villa Williams Comrie, um, which I, I do a podcast with mm -hmm. her and my really good friend, Evelyn Alvarez, who was Garifuna um, from uh, Guatemala. Um, and John Villa always says, um, there is no Latino community. There's not. And the thing is, we give workshops and it's called Anti-Blackness in the Latine Community. Um, and then in that workshop, we say the Latine Community doesn't exist. And people are confused, like, why would you call it that then? So that we can challenge that, right? You have to speak people's language so that they understand, you know, we, we need to reel you in and then spread our message, right? Um, and so I think the group of people that decided to, to put Cimarron, which is, you know, as maybe some people know, um, self-emancipated Africans, right? Which we have communities all throughout the region. We have the, one of the first ones in Panama, um, Santiago del Principe, which um, was a, a self-emancipated settlement. Actually, there's tons of them in, in Panama. Like, when you talk about Africans rebelling, like, when they came to Panama, they were like, bye, <laughs> see ya. And so um, I think, as um, Gerenad said about this iteration of resistance, I, I love to see it on one hand, but again, this conversation isn't new. We've had, we've always had those partnerships. We've always spoken to one another, always. Always. Um, always. We've always traveled to one another. We've always collaborated with one another. And so um, I love this turn away from Latinidad because Latinidad is squarely rooted in the hegemonic domination of the Castle crown of the Iberian Peninsula, right? And so within that Latinidad, you have this idea of mestizaje as Gerenad had touched on, right? On the, the, the mixing of people, right? But again, it was white people at the top and black people at the foundation. And so I love when people turn to the truth of what it truly is. Latinidad was never for us. It was, it was made it as an anti-us. It didn't, it didn't um, consider us. It banked on our extermination, <laughs> really. Yeah. And so I love when people can, can, can see that, can realize that, uh, because oftentimes uh, these identities are hinged on lies and power and subjugation of swaths of people. Because as you mentioned, there's over 150 million Afro-descendants in Latin America. That, that's not a little number. <laughs> you see, what you're saying is accurate because I come from a country where there's a very large African population. However, there's a very large East Indian population. And there are other groups, there are other Asian groups like the Chinese, we have Arabs, we have a lot of Syrians, we have whites. 
And then we had migration from South America and from the other islands, okay? So in Trinidad, yes, you're going to find unmixed African people, but you're going to find a lot of mixed people. Some of the people are mixed African and Indian. Some of the people are mixed and look like what you would call a Latino. So I'm saying, well, if, so we have Latinos in Trinidad too then, <laughs> because that means Latino doesn't exist. And, and I've always had that in the back of my head, just because of the racial mix in my own country. Because some of these people are literally falling into the category of what would be called a Latino, but they're Trinidadians. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just how made up it is and how based on how made up. And how and Dash, you brought this up the last time we spoke, which was the idea of it's all relative. Relational Blackness, relational identity. Um, and I, I love the part that you brought up about how, you know, if, you, if you're negating a part of you, then that, then you subscribe to like this, this society with the idea of Spain at the top. So the last time we spoke, we spoke about Haiti and the Dominican Republic, which is a topic that I, I can't log off without talking about today, right? Um, the idea and I want to I want to preface this by saying I have sisters that are Dominican. I have girls that are like my rock that are Dominican and that don't subscribe to this. But when I say Dominicans, I mean like the ones that subscribe to an idea of anti-blackness and anti-Africanness. Within that identity is the Latin identity. Is you know the Hispanic the the we are descendant from from the Spaniards that identity because the dominicans have robustly assumed that at the same time negating blackness and at the same time denying haitianness because they're not black haitians therefore in relation to that say well i'm black therefore i am haitian therefore i am not latin so there is you know there there is a categorization that's happening we're being we're being pulled apart Never mind the fact that there are Haitians that speak Spanish, that go into the DR every day. Haitians that, you know, they had kids in the DR. Their kids and, they, and their kids after that and their kids after that absolutely identify with, you know, Dominican culture, Dominican food, Spanish, whatever. But the issue of Blackness is there. And they're, you know, conflicted about how I as a Black person and as someone of Haitian descent can also be um, Latino or Latino. So we, we have to look at that too. There are groups that already decided for us, like I said earlier, sometimes it doesn't matter how you identify. If somebody has already said you can't be one of us, then you're going to go where you're wanted and you're going to identify as you are welcomed. You know, when you were speaking about how Haiti has been ostracized from the rest of the Caribbean, um, I think we need to touch on religion for a second because... Uh, a vast majority of the English-speaking Caribbean is African. Um, and a lot of them look like they could be from Haiti as well, okay? So colorism plays one factor, but religion. Um, African religions have been so demonized. Africa in general has been demonized. So the closer you are to what a typical enslaved African, 
would look like, act like, talk like, worship like, they worse you up. Okay, so Haiti has been traditionally demonized because of voodoo. Yes, and I believe that the fear is still there. I believe there's beginning to be a shift. I try to be patient with African people because I realize that 500 years of not physical enslavement is minor. Mental enslavement and psychological trauma. 500 years cannot be fixed in 50 to 60 to 70, 100 years. There's a lot more that needs to be done. It's a process. It's, it's psychological. It's almost medical at this point. And um, I believe that we're beginning to fear Haiti less, which is funny because there are African practices in the rest of the Caribbean, in the English-speaking Caribbean, right here in Trinidad, like, for example, the essence of carnival. The reason that carnival in Trinidad was outlawed at one point was because it was too African in terms of its religion and its symbology and its dancing and all of that, and they tried to kill us in the streets and there was a war. So it's here, but because Haiti was like the poster child for this dark outside of Africa, Haiti was a dark continent or a dark island with all the voodoo and the evil and the dark, dark people, you know, so the trauma is deep. Yes. <laughs> and trauma it's, is deep. and yeah. again, it's, it's not just Haiti. Um, this, this started when they went to the shores of West Africa to get us. They had to start that indoctrination early. Um, in terms of seeing it as something dark, and it's something strange. I think that's true. I think, like I said, that started early. They, there were a lot of things they didn't understand about um, the animists and about the indigenous religions and practices that we had. But I also would say that that is a source of our strength. That is something that, you know, they could not, they could not conquer us until they conquered that. And the connection that we have in terms of our spirituality makes us magical it makes us strong it's it's a, it's our community and so they had to attack that first and to attack it they just they mm -hmm. just said it was of of black magic it was it was of the demons or whatever and as we've talked about with colorism and with with politics they did it first they did it well and then we d we've done it ourselves so in haiti you continue to see a lot of people denigrate voodoo practitioners voodoo priestesses um while not realizing how ingrained in culture it is voodoo is so much more than a religion voodoo is so much more than you know the the sort of tricksterism and the commercialism that you see in like the media um it is our health it is how we protect ourselves in food it is how we you know communicate to each other and how we protect each other it's how we raise our children um, and my mom, who I love and who considers herself a devout Christian, now that, you know, it's COVID and church is online, she's going to like six services a day on Sunday. It's ridiculous. And she doesn't know that in her practices and in her daily, you know, errands and in the things that she's do, she's invoking voodoo sometimes, what we consider voodoo. And that that is something that I think we're also starting to unpack. 
um, one of one of the most beautiful experiences I ever had I I've had actually is when I traveled to Bahia and um, watched you know Candomblé and a, a, it was a Candomblé ceremony and then afterwards talking to the Afro Brazilians about where they had learned what was clearly you know something like traditions from the Yoruba tradition in Nigeria. And I was like, oh, you must have traveled there recently. Um, and they're like, we've never left Bahia. We've never left this place. This is passed down. This is something we cherish. This is something they tried to take from us and we took it back. And I'm like, why can't we do that in the rest of the Caribbean? Like, why, why can't we say, you know, it, like the, the traditions of whatever our ancestors practiced were ways that we survived we we need to harness that we're strong because of what our ancestors did what gave them that strength so yes haiti has been has been demonized for this and the practice itself has been demonized but it exists it exists like and and, and you know i, I said this to you and dash earlier when we first met that as i travel I traveled across the u.s traveled across the caribbean traveled across africa I kind of realize that the differences between what African people do in all of those regions is very, very slim. And that point that you made about your mom being Christian, but her rituals every day are voodoo. It's the same thing in my country. It's the same thing with African-Americans. Like the only groups of people I would see in Trinidad, they tell you don't put your, your handbag on the floor because you'll be poor. I mean, it's logical, it's scientific. You, you, you ground in the money. <laughs> like, why would you put the money down? And then I went to the United States and African-Americans from down south were also practicing that. But I didn't see other groups doing it. That's voodoo. That's obia. <laughs> that's orisha. That's scientific. You see what I'm saying? So we do it in our gestures every day, even in the way that we eat you know, you, you, in the Caribbean, they tell you if you, um, if you have to iron clothes, right? You don't iron before you take a shower. You take a shower before you iron. All of that is African spirituality, which is highly scientific. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, but we cover it up and then we, we, we deny that we're practicing it. You know, or we only use it for emergency. Like if it's a really, really, <laughs> you see that. things as a Because I've like, had Nigerians, you know, I've had Nigerians say, "Oh, you practice that Yoruba witchcraft," <laughs> uh, but when somebody's on their deathbed, you in front of a babalao, right? Why you didn't go to the evangelist? When the green card or something serious come about. <laughs> I wanted to add that this idea of, you know, what were the words? Dark, strange. It's like, according to who, right? According to the white gaze. And I love that Gadenat said that it's not a religion. This is spirituality. This is a way of life. This is cultural ways of being, cultural manifestations, expressions. And Yoruba is, for the first tenet is your health. Your health. You can't ask for anything before your health. You can't even go to Oricha until you venerate your ancestors, your dead, your muertos, your egun. And it's in, it's in this relationship that we have with nature, that we belong to nature, we belong to the land, right? Um, and, and this idea of um, 
magic, right? And witchcraft, because these are, these are words that are used to describe our um, ways of being. And the thing is, it's interesting which, ma which types of magic is the devil, right? Because if you're a Christian and you pray for a job and you got the job, that's witchcraft to me. You just prayed to somebody in the sky and got a job? Really? That ain't the devil? So <laughs> it's interesting which magic is demonized, right? And it's all anti-Black. You know, we, we agree on that. All of it is anti-Black. And so in, in speaking about our spiritual pathways, um, like you mentioned, there's very little difference because these are African ways of being, right? We, we in speaking about um, Bahia and how the Yoruba tradition has been preserved there in the same way in Cuba. Um, and also there have been Nigerians that came to Cuba mm -hmm. to recover what, was, what, what had left. Because when we talk about that, there were swaths, town, whole towns and cities taken and enslaved. And so there also was the loss of that spirituality on the continent of Africa. And then you had Cubans like Adegina that went to Nigeria and the back and forth, right? And in this, you know, in this topic of religion, um, I think it's important to state of the, the hegemonic Christian domination that um, the, these um, Iberian, Penins, uh, pe Iberian people from, from um, Europe, French, this dissemination of Christianity, right? Because why? The Moors, the, the Muslims uh, ruled Southern Spain for 700 years, right? And so when they drove out the Muslims, they, they went on the Crusades. It was called the Crusades. They're the conquistadores. They're going to conquer, right? And to convert, um, to wipe out this Muslim stain. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the people they enslaved were Muslim and purposely, right? And so this idea of converting and saving these noble savages, saving indigenous people, saving Africans. Um, when we talk about enslavement, it just, like, like you mentioned, Sanya, it's, it, just, it just wasn't the body, it was spiritual. Because in speaking about those maroon towns, you had Palenque de San Basilio, they could not dominate them. The Spanish kept losing. The Africans were like, no. <laughs> and so finally the Spanish was like, okay, can we baptize you? And so they ended up baptizing that town. And there's a people in that town whose last name is, is Cassiani, which was the Italian bush, bishop that, 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 that baptized them. So they, they lost their African names. And so domination was, was also psychically, spiritually. That's how they got you. Yeah, yeah. And you know, a lot of um, the people in the chat, a lot of our participants have been trying to say that for the past few minutes, that um, the spirituality was the key. And that's why I was so dismissive about the, the shuttle, the, 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 the physical aspect was very minimal. You know, when they take away your name, again, that's Obia, that's Voodoo, that's Ifa. Your name is so important. When people utter your name, just the vibration of that sound in the language. If you take away that and you give me an English name or a Spanish name, the magic is already cut. Mm -hmm. And then you take away my gods and you take away my communication, which is my drums, and you take away my music, <laughs> you know? And, um, but it, it lived, they couldn't kill get, it, it lived. When you get initiated in Cuba, you get a Nigerian name. When you're initiated into Yoruba, my husband has a Nigerian name. Mm -hmm. And so it's this, you know, because we had to do these practices in, in, in private and, you know, hidden, right? Hide our, our spirituality underneath this white face, 
right? And and a lot of people will say like in the U.S., right, that African Americans they got their drums taken away. The British were like, no drums, buy it. And I'm like, but what do you think the tambourine is? They were like, oh, we can't make a drum, we'll make a hand drum. And the thing is, the tambourine has bells. And the bata drums in Yoruba has bells as well. And so, like, the, there's these little... We found I ways of doing it. Know, like, to me, it's, like, really yeah. blatant <laughs> connection. Yeah, and, 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 you know, I can take that back to Trinidad again, because Trinidad had so many, and you can see it through Carnival, so many ways that they hid what they were doing. I mean, some of it was obvious, but um, even like the steel, the steel pan, I don't know if y'all are familiar with our mm -hmm. musical, okay. So they took away the drums, but we made that because we had to, <laughs> we had to get it out somehow, you know? So we always wanna, it's, it's always gonna live. <laughs> and I, I, wanna, I wanna speak on something that, that Dash mentioned in terms of, you know, the Moors and the Crusades, one of the things that we're doing in the United States and around the world in terms of the majority, the world majority, which is people of color, is unlearning what they taught us. And one of the things that I'm certain of, and that is, is called for a reckoning in the United States is the, the white population examining itself and examining its flaws in relation to people of color. One of those, you know, things that, that has never sat well with me is that mathematics, and Sanya, you mentioned this too, physics, building, architecture, all of these things were evident in Africa. All of these things were evident in ancient societies and then found their way into European societies much later. What they made sure to do was to take the vast knowledge and the scientific advancements that we had made before they killed us. So they learned from us. And what I think happened is in being ashamed or in self-reflection of how can these beastly people be smarter and more advanced than us, we're gonna take what they've learned and then we're going to subjugate them as if they had, no, they had no knowledge, as if they had no scientific advancements. There's so much that we don't know about what we were already capable of before they cut, up, cut us off from it. And so like, I'm, I'm just examining everything that I've learned now. I'm, I'm unpackaging everything like, yeah, they said they wanted to you know, teach us Christianity. They said that they wanted to civilize us, but they were a civilization because of us. So how does that make sense? No, it's, it's, a, it's a function of you are insecure and you feel a way about us being superior and you need for, you need for us to be inferior and this is how you're gonna do it. So I, I just wanted to, to mention that point because Dash sort of triggered it in my mind and I wanted to say it before I forgot. How to Make a Slave. <laughs> There's actually a book in the Library of the Congress. I actually saw the book. I went to the Library of the Congress. <laughs> and um, I actually saw the book. It's called How to Make a Slave. It's more mental and spiritual than physical. It's definitely a whole mental process because, like, you know, even in the Caribbean, for example, Africans, the numbers were large. You know, the numbers were large, but they, they had them in the mind the religion and so forth yeah 
Um, with that like it was it was more of us than them like why why didn't we just rock their shit you know but like if you yeah, know, it. <laughs> and the thing was they were terrified they they were terrified the entire time you know um because we could have just really we could have really just rocked their shit right and um, divide and rule as well divide exactly and rule. exactly and so you if you have someone who can be loyal to their ways of being, to try to approximate how they are, then you don't you don't have to lift up any any type of weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, we're coming to the end of our conversation, um, Dash and Cardinal. I don't know if you all have anything that you all would like to say in closing, or any of the attendees in the room. Are there any questions that you have for Dash or Cardinal? Anything that you all want to know? Any last words, ladies? Dash, you can go first. <laughs> Someone said it's too soon. It's too <laughs> soon? <laughs> um, no, it's just that um, I really like these conversations with, I mean, I'm biased. Um, I, I love speaking with Black women. <laughs> just, <laughs> that's my target demographic that, you know, <laughs> Those are the people that have always, always held me down without exception. Um, and so I think uh, I love building these, these spaces, right? Building community. Um, I think it's, it's mandatory, as Gerenad said, about divesting, um, unconditioning ourselves. And at the same time, unlearning and unconditioning, um, relearning. Right. And sometimes I will even add, sometimes you don't even have to relearn. You may just have to remember. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so many things that and and I, I talk about this with my girlfriend that I feel like I'm the last. I mean, one of the last generations that was raised with their elders, like my grandma is like my BFFs. She's my BFF. Like we go to bingo. I'm like, we going to bingo tonight? She's like, no, I don't feel. I'm like, no, we going. And so I think it's especially important to sit with your elders, to document what they're saying, to ask them questions. And I know Caribbean and Latin American elders don't ever want to give them no information. Why you want to know that for? It's like, um, this is our family history. Force them, right? Um, or even just a pathway. Just ask them questions about their childhood. Ask just general question about a plant. Even that, right? Um, go to the market with them. And I, obviously, I know within these times, it's a challenge, right? Um, but, you know, just even a trip to the market um, with, I remember one, I, re- I remember so fondly. I don't know. I used, I always go to the market with my grandma um, and she would go to the meat market. I would wait outside because I can't take the meat market um, and I'm looking for fruits and vegetables. And she's like, oh, and I'm like, what is this, Abuelita? This was years ago. She's like, this is turmeric. Th- get this for this, 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 this does this and this does that. And so in just incorporating our ways of being, the wealth of knowledge is right there. My grandma's right there. Your aunt is right there, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I think it's, it's in divesting from a white ways of being, white dominant culture, divesting, canceling Latinidad, like um, Migrant Scribble says, um, and centering Blackness and centering who you are. Um, for so long, we've been devalued and that's been the messaging. But again, it's like, and I made a joke about this, um, on shampoo bottles or conditioner, they're always like a dime-sized amount of conditioner. When right. has a Black person ever used right. a dime-sized amount of nobody's... <laughs> and realizing all of these rules were made 
by them. Mm-hmm. That has nothing to do with me. That's your problem. Right. You know, and, and so, you know, I think it's important in centering blackness in, um, in prioritizing black people and walking the walk. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in closing, I would like to echo the organizers goal in this, which I think if you look at the about section of the website, it's all about connections, right? And that's what you have been encouraging to Sunny is the, the ways that we're linked and the similarities that have persisted despite the borders. The most important thing um, for me is, is sort of like a, a, a healing for us. Um, in the Caribbean, but especially in Haiti, we have incredible trauma. We had a violent beginning, one that is embraced and one that is the central tenant of our heritage, but one that was very violent. And the violence has continued to this day. Um, you know, unfortunately, just this, you know, this this past week we had a young girl who was kidnapped and then killed, and that has galvanized the Haitian population again to, you know, be vocal to protest whatever. But until we really dig deep, understanding why it is the way that we are, what we've gone through that we've never processed we're not gonna move forward as a people, individual nations or as a region. And so what Dash mentioned is, is absolutely integral to that is talking to your family members, your elders, talking to your community, trying to understand why you do the things that you do, what happened in our family that makes us this way. These are the ways that we begin to heal and these are the ways that we begin to, begin to progress. Um, and probably with black women leading the way because we're magic exactly as Dash said, these, these are the spaces that I love because I'm inspired, I learn, and I just feel better. Um, so I, I think that we're leaning into our magic more than ever before, and we need to be unapologetic about it. We don't need to be humble. We don't need to ask for permission. Um, we're we're going to lead all these change movements, and let's just do what we're put on this earth to do. And yeah, and, and, and the, 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 healing, the, the healing has to be the new generation has to charge it differently. I'm a firm believer that yes, there's nothing new under the sun. So everything is cyclical, but everything is also periodic. You're gonna hear me talking in these math terms, but it's gonna go around in a circle, but it's gonna go this way as well. It's gonna go forward. So you cannot repeat the struggle of your parents. Just like your parents could not repeat the struggle of their parents. So the younger generation, that's coming up has to take the healing to a different level. Mm-hmm. I remember, now I don't don't quote me on this, but I believe it was um, a PhD student or a professor from Howard University. A lot of important black studies take place at Unite at, at the University of the West Indies and at Howard University. And she's the one came up with the term um, post-traumatic slavery syndrome, mm-hmm. which included colorism, it's included the trauma that you were discussing that Haitians have experienced generation upon generation. Because if you're a colorist, you're mentally damaged. Yeah, if you're a featureist, you're mentally damaged. If you think that African religions are evil, you're mentally damaged. And then there's treatment that we need to develop to treat these traumas and these mental issues that we have as a people. And also to employ the traditional methods of healing as well. 
the oral traditions because I'm sure we call it a bush bath in Trinidad. I'm sure that there are herbal washes and different things that we can do as a people to systematically heal ourselves in groups. In groups, not just your grandmother telling you. We need to share the information with each other and let us strategically do some type of healing to rectify this issue. You know, we can't fight the same battles over and over again. Take it to a different level. Yeah? So I don't know if there's anything else that your ladies wanted to add about no, the Afro-Latino experience. Huh? I agree with you. I agree with you. You yes. can't uh, keep repeating the cycles. I think it's restorative restorative and transformative healing and we can't heal what we don't reveal so i completely agree with you Amen. yeah and, and we just need to stick together because i was like i always knew i'm so glad to hear two afro latinos say it but i'm like this latino black, thing is black a, women is a first right <laughs> to my people yeah because i was like this 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 latino thing is a facade it's nonsense <laughs> it's nonsense. So I was like, you know what? We'll take them. <laughs> they don't have to be Afro-Latinos. They can stick with us. We're with their Africans, <laughs> just like the rest of us. Forget the Latino. <laughs> well, I, love yeah, it I, I feel love like it. people that join this conversation are like, wait a minute, I thought y'all were going to embrace Afro-Latini, Dad. What's going on no. here? Nah. But that's the aspirin and the applesauce. That's the aspirin and the applesauce. <laughs> just you know, like we take... Just like we'll take the African-Americans, they can throw away the American aspect if they want right. to. Remember, remember, <laughs> Philip, remember Philip's, uh, the, the milk of magnesia? In yes. The, in yes. The bottle? My mom yes. used to hold it up and she's like, look, I'll give you a chocolate if you take this. And yeah, so yeah. We, we, we drew people in with the chocolate. Yeah. <laughs> now take this. Take this I like that. Take your medicine. Take your medicine, yes? Okay, so um, ladies, it was a pleasure. We want to thank all the participants who joined us tonight. And um, we just want to say thank you so much for, for, for being here. Ashe, Ashe, Ashe.